0: This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer.
1: Try to pay attention to what your localities are going to do next year um, in redistricting, um, because that's where you can have the, the most impact. I mean, there are people on the show who can probably uh, get on a charter um, commission for uh, their county or city and then uh, see what you can do, because that's where um, communities of color are really lacking political representation
2: channel 253 is sponsored by alaska airlines i'm nate bowling and i fly alaska to book your next trip go to alaskaair.com
0: Hi, I'm Melanie Denise Cunningham. And I'm Audrey Cunningham. And we're the host of the Channel 253 podcast, What Say You? This episode of Channel 253 is sponsored by PeaceWorks United and the Greater Tacoma Community Foundation. We're here to remind you that the 2020 census is getting underway and that you, yes, you should participate. That's right. I know people can get nervous when someone from the government shows up with a clipboard. But here's the truth. Participate. Participating in the census will help us get our fair share of representatives to Congress. It will help us get more federal funds to our community, improve our school districts, and many other things. And you don't have to be a voter. You don't have to be a citizen even. In terms of the census, you count. Ten questions. 10 minutes census day is april 1st fill out that form thank you to peaceworks united and the greater tacoma community foundation for your sponsorship of channel 253 and getting the word out about the 2020 census
2: this is the nerd farmer podcast a national conversation through a local lens Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast, an interview show. My name's Nate Bowling, and I'm your host. Hey, Doug, how you doing tonight? Pretty good, but it's morning where I'm at. What are you talking uh, about? Enough. What are you talking about today, Nate? <laughs> I'm starting to hate time zones because of that. I keep doing that. Uh, so today I have on uh, my son on the internet, basically uh, my man Kamal, and we're gonna chop it up about his moment of passion right now, the uh, U.S. census. Uh, The census is one of those things that comes around like once every 10 years. I teach about it in class, but I think a lot of us take it for granted and don't think about how important it is in our politics. And I think in particular, given like who's the president of the United States and current political events, that the census is going to be more important in 2020 than ever before. So that's our, that's what we have on tap for today. Uh, Kamal, welcome to the show, man. Hey, hey. So Kamal, you have a fancy title. You are the, are you the executive
1: director, the president? How do you want to, how do you want to call this? My formal title is manager for the Washington Census Alliance. um, But it's uh, just like any other executive director role of a nonprofit. Uh,
2: What is the Washington Census Alliance?
1: The Washington Census Alliance is this amazing coalition of over 60 organizations, organizations, led by and working in communities of color around Washington state came together in 2018, um, when the prospect of a citizenship question on the census and the repercussions that it would have for communities of color and immigrants in particular was, uh, very real. And they, uh, these organizations came together to push the Washington state legislature to allocate, uh, money to do uh, outreach for the census and make sure that there was a complete count. Um, because the other thing that was happening at the time was uh, uh, Speaker Ryan at the time and uh, McConnell and the president were working in concert to um, gut the, the Census Bureau uh, and especially uh, the aspects of the Census Bureau that does, uh, typically does a sort of outreach.
2: Uh, it's interesting to hear you say they tried to gut the Census Bureau given events happening in the world. Uh, I don't normally like date stamp episodes, but because part of this conversation is going to include uh, talk about the coronavirus and the corona outbreak. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're listening to this, Kamau and I are having this conversation in uh, mid-March. Uh, it's Sunday actually here, Sunday, March 15th, I want to say. Uh, and so like I woke up this morning to the... Uh, the, the news that here in the United Arab Emirates, uh, all movie theaters are closed, all parks have been closed uh, and all the nightclubs have been closed. And so the outbreak is kind of proceeding and that's gonna be a kind of thing we bring up later on in the conversation. Uh, you mentioned the citizenship question. Uh, what was the final verdict on that? Is that on the census this year or no?
1: It's not on uh, the census this year. Um, in uh, 2019, Uh, the Supreme Court had a very interesting uh, ruling on the citizenship question. Uh, One, they ruled that the Trump administration could uh, not implement uh, the citizenship question, but their justifications for it um, are really telling for the times we're in. So four of the uh, conservative leading justices were completely fine with the citizenship question, and they were fine with um, what came out uh, afterwards, which was that the Trump administration was lying. Uh, the Trump administration was saying they needed the citizenship question to enforce the Voting Rights Act. Um, and as we all know, uh, Donald Trump was a longtime uh, civil rights uh, fighter, a uh, big fan of the uh, Voting Rights Act. And so those four justices were not only okay (laughs) with implementing uh, the citizenship question, something that the Census Bureau showed would create an undercount in communities of color. They were okay with being lied to um, and they signed off on it. And if you read uh, Justice Roberts, uh, the chief justice's opinion, um, it's like uh, one of those. uh, It reminds me of one of the papers that I'd start writing um, the night before it was due. Uh, midway figure out that my reasoning doesn't make sense and then slap together a kind of cover um, different thesis on the front page and hope that it works. The chief justices ruled that, you know, on principle, it was okay to implement a citizenship question. Again, even though the Census Bureau showed they would cause an undercount in communities of color, and we can talk about why that's so bad but that the trump administration violated the administrative procedures act and uh, this is uh, an act that prevents um agencies from sort of slapping together policies and lying to the public about it so the chief justice said you know you could do this very racist thing just don't lie to us um or at the very least uh don't uh lie to us and let it get out in in the media and so um That's what led to the 5-4 decision to not have the citizenship question um, on there. But there's a lot of people, uh, particularly people who don't follow the news, um, that uh, still think that a citizenship question might be on uh, the questionnaire. And even worse, to the point that you were bringing up about the time we're in, uh, where the past few weeks have been spent uh, watching the president lie to the public. Or just appear to not know what he's doing. No one believes. There's very there's a lot of people out there uh, that you know even when you tell them the citizenship question isn't going to be on the census, uh, they don't believe you. And uh, even if they believe you that the citizenship question won't be on the questionnaire, it's uh, you know a really difficult thing to get them to trust this particular government uh, with their information, um, even though you know uh, statutorily it's safe secure. Uh, but that's one of the things that the that the Washington Census Alliance has been working on uh, is to try and um, fill in the gap for trust in the government with trust in each other, uh, with trust uh, of what their aunties are are telling them, our trusted messengers, um, and that's what's uh, been our work.
2: I don't know, man. I'm a little conflicted here because you're saying that John Roberts wrote a crappy legal briefing and Fox News says that John Roberts is the greatest legal mind of, of, of our generation. So like, I don't know who to believe. Like, I, you know, like you may have read this brief, but Fox News says, let me stop. Let me stop. Uh, I feel like we jumped right into your work around the census, but we haven't talked about the census yet. So yeah. for the for the folks who like aren't like hip to it, like what is the census and why does it matter so much uh, for voters in Washington state and people in Washington state?
1: What is the census? Um, uh, So the census is a constitutionally uh, mandated um, uh, procedure that the government has to undertake every 10 years uh, in the constitution. And it is to get an enumeration of all the people living in the United States. And it's critically important because uh, that is the basis for much of, many of the funding formulas in uh, federal and state legislation. So when you're thinking about uh, how do schools get funded, how do cities get grants, um, how do uh, governments uh, get funding for roads, those are funding formulas that uh, use the count from the census. So it's critical for funding for uh, every household that it goes uh, undercounted. Thousands and thousands of dollars um, are lost. For the state of Washington, for example, uh, in 2016, I believe we got $16.7 billion uh, in federal funding based on the census count. And uh, so an undercount is, you know, very harmful to everyone, um, but in communities of color in particular, for those much smaller grants, for smaller cities uh, and smaller programs. And then, uh, the census is not just how we redistribute resources, which is a really the way I think we should be thinking about it, but it's also how we redistribute political power in the United States because of, uh, redistricting and, um, and the apportionment of congressional seats to each state. So what that means is, uh, the count of people in a particular state determines, um, how many congressional seats each state is awarded. And if, uh, followers of this podcast and, and others know how many congressional seats equals how many electoral college points, um, are awarded to each state. Something that's, uh, become, you know, a very important thing to follow, uh, these last few years. And it's also how uh, redistricting takes place, the number that's used. So all the problems that people have with uh, gerrymandering, um, before you even get to gerrymandering, a way to think about what we were just discussing earlier with the citizenship question is that's like pre-gerrymandering. So that's gerrymandering the data set uh, before you even get to uh, trying to slice and dice uh, districts.
2: So I want to come back to the redistricting, gerrymandering, reapportionment conversation, maybe in segment two. Uh, mm-hmm. But what I really want to focus on is like this funding formula, this funding equity. I think about my classroom, like we talk about highway funds, and so like obviously California needs more money for highway funds than like the than, than like the Wy- Wyoming or the Dakotas or Vermont, mm-hmm. New Hampshire should be one state. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, how do we know how much money each state gets? You mentioned the formula of grants. Uh, so much federal money that comes into states and I don't think the average citizen uh, really has their head around uh, how much money the federal government like, kicks back to states in the form of grants is up for grabs and is at risk if we don't get a proper tally here in Washington state. Uh, it's interesting to me because so you're working for the Washington Census Alliance, uh, mm-hmm. but the Washington Census Alliance doesn't actually conduct the census, the federal government does. So can you talk about like how the census is actually done and what it looks like in our communities?
1: Yes. Uh, So the nuts and bolts of it are um, usually there's, uh, it's an all hands uh, effort. So there's the Census Bureau, which is in charge of uh, this year, the uh, site, um, because the census is now live and online. So They manage how people actually take the census um, through online, phone, and mail. And they uh, do a big hire of people um, to get the word out about the census, and also the enumerators um, who go uh, knocking on doors if uh, people don't self-respond. So that's kind of the federal government's role, its actually conducting the census. But in order to do that, you have to have a lot of partnerships. Um, with state and local governments. So in Washington state, there's a lot of uh, what are called complete count committees uh, where state, federal government, and then people like us, uh, you know, community-based organizations uh, come together to make sure that people know about the census, they understand why it's important, and you can increase critically the self-response rates. Um, and the reason that increasing the self-response rates are so important is because that's where you can capture the best demographic data. So you can think, for um, example, we can uh, get into the, into this. Uh, when, uh, you yourself don't respond to the census, what happens is an enumerator gets sent to your door. Now, you know, uh, this gets an interesting sociological point, but the way people might identify uh, changes with situations, right? So if you are, imagine yourself as um, like a uh, white passing Iranian American and uh, the census is going to take place, you know, starting now, census day is April 1st. um, But let's say, you know, in between that period, we reescalate with Iran uh, the way we did earlier this year. And now you're a white pressing Iranian American, you know, maybe somewhat new to the US, and you have a government agent at your door um, asking you uh, questions about your race. You might, you know, not be willing to uh, be honest about who you are, uh, about about your race, Uh, answer that correctly, because maybe you think if I answer white, um, that somehow makes me safe, Um, particularly if you're. Uh, like me, and you're undocumented. Um, but that means you lose demographic data, and that makes it much harder for targeted, equitable funding. And then, of course, that's repercussions for redistricting. So, um, you know, it's uh, the entire conduct conduction of the census begins with the Census Bureau uh, trying to uh, make sure that people can fill out the forms and then state and uh, local organizations, encouraging participation and critically uh, self-response.
2: I can hear one of my listeners who gets upset about racial categorizations on forms, talk about how like, well, I don't want to check a box saying that I'm black or or that Mm -hmm. I'm white or that I'm whatever, I'm human. Uh, Why does the racial categorization data on the census matter so much?
1: Yeah, that is uh, that's great because I think a lot of people uh, don't feel like they don't want to be put in a box and um, something we should all uh, understand and I think is important is uh, this is one of the ways um, that uh, how you personally identify and how the outside world acts on you based on race um, comes into play. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, and what I would, what I would say is, uh, this is how the government understands like how it, uh, can navigate the country, how it knows to uh, push out funding and how it knows to cut the lines. And so if you don't correctly, um, like how you identify, put that on the census, um, that's going to have a huge effect for your community. So uh, when you, I, you are filling out the individual form, you're giving statist- You're giving data points to the Census Bureau. The Census Bureau is immediately turning that into a statistic for what's called like your census tract. And you can think of it about a neighborhood of 2,500 people. And so whether that neighborhood is uh, 60, 40, uh, white or non-white, um, Or, you know, uh, 51, 49, um, female versus male really matters uh, to the decisions that local governments need to make, state governments need to make. Um, And so, uh, you know, that's why it's so important for you to put down your races. It's not so much about uh, what the government thinks of you. It's how the government is able to understand uh, the community around you. Um, and it's what allows for, especially for people who kind of do the, you know, I'm not black or white, I'm human. Um, and I think that at least comes from an intention of, uh, trying to be progressive on yeah, racial it, issues. It comes from a good place. No shade, no smoke. It comes from a good place, yeah. yeah. It comes from a good place. Um, but that kind of, uh, demographic data is what allows for things like enforcement of the Voting Rights Act, uh, for us to figure out, um, you know, statistics around housing or environmental impacts. So if you ever hear on the news that, um, oh, you know, this neighborhood has these outcomes, uh, usually those researchers are using using census data to try and figure out, like, why is it that uh, East Tacoma um, has the outcomes that it does versus uh, Northeast uh, Tacoma? So things like that.
2: Census tracks are fascinating. Like, you'll oftentimes look at a map and see these neighborhood names that you never use, right? So, like, I, my old house is in East Tacoma, and the census tract is called Hillsdale, right? But don't really call it Hillsdale. <laughs> like, ain't nothing on East Tacoma called Hillsdale, for sure. Um, <laughs> As you're talking through this, there's two marginalized populations that leap to my mind. And I wonder, uh, what advice are you giving people who are members of the undocumented community about completing the census? And what advice are you giving to our uh, lesbian and trans brothers and sisters, um, particular trans people about the census and how how they should identify?
1: So um, the first piece of advice is uh, just how uh, important this is. And uh, trying to uh, have people think about the community they're around and the impact they'll have if uh, they're not counting, if they're not counted. The second, you know, thing I try to communicate is it's not an accident that uh, the census form is unwelcoming uh, to people who are gender non-conforming, they don't fit into that uh, sex box of male or female, Um, and it's not an accident that uh, the administration, you know, gutted uh, the Census Bureau and then um, has been uh, extremely xenophobic uh, and then tried to implement the citizenship question. People have a right to be, you know, concerned and feel that uh, the census isn't very welcoming to them, but that's for a reason there are concerted interests in this country that don't want funding and political representation uh and political power going to certain communities and they want to hoard it in uh others and so you we one way we know about this is just the actions of this administration so a couple of things that were were going to happen before the administration came into office and made changes is there were going to be you know other gender opportunities to choose from A lot of the things around uh, the race question on the census were going to get fixed. So if people look at the census form right now, um, under white, it'll have several examples, one of which includes Egyptian, uh, a country that is in Africa. Um, And, uh, you know, the implementation of the citizenship question was another way to um, make sure that certain people didn't get counted. So understanding that there are people that don't want you to fill out that form, Uh, just like, you know, you try to understand that there's a reason that people try hard, uh, to implement voter suppression is a way you can understand like, this is a way I can at least move the needle. And the, you know, last point is, um, if you're someone who is gender non-conforming or undocumented and you're hoping to see, uh, policies, uh, that are welcoming, um, to, uh, you and your community. this is the first step, um, but you know certainly not the last. Towards uh, allowing people around to uh, policymakers to know what the community looks like, and then finally, and uh, you know this is the most important point is if you don't self respond to the census, someone will come to your door and uh, answering if you're gender non conforming uh, and answering that you know checking one of those boxes feels really uncomfortable to you. Um, the, the tough part of it is it's going to feel way more uncomfortable when there is a stranger with a government badge coming to your door and trying to ask you that question. And the same thing for, uh, the race question. And so, uh, an act of, I think, um, both caring for yourself and, and trying to protect yourself from that kind of interaction is, uh, to respond to the census and the privacy of your own home, uh, knowing that, uh, this is just sending off a data point to produce a statistic and uh, something that's really important for your community. Okay.
2: So we'll take a break here. And when we come back, uh, I want to get some more, I wanna, I wanna probe that question about undocumented families a little bit more because I had a experience of conviction about advising kids to apply for DACA in mm-hmm. which they gave their information to the federal government and that was used against them. So I wanna come back to that uh, after
0: the break. We'll be back. Mm-hmm. Hi, I'm Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, We Art Tacoma, and I've been a member of TAPCO Credit Union since I was a kid, really. My parents set up a savings account for me, and I've had that account with them ever since. In fact, my first credit card wasn't from a big bank, it was from TAPCO, and I still have that, too. What I appreciate about TAPCO is they are intensely local. Just like Channel 253, TAPCO keeps its focus on Tacoma and Pierce County. They have easy-to-reach branches and ATMs in the Tacoma area. And when I don't want to drive, I just use their online or mobile banking. To this day, TAPCO helps parents teach kids good savings habits. The Moolah Kids Club teaches kids about savings, not only through interest on their money, but with special prizes and discounts at local attractions. So if you want to help your kids start a savings account the same way my parents did, check out our local credit union at tapcocu.org. My thanks to TAPCO for their support of this podcast and channel 253.
2: And we are back. This show is a production of Channel 253. We're a network of podcasts based in Tacoma, Washington, telling stories from all over the world. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've brought you stories about the coronavirus and its impact on schools. Uh, we've brought you stories about housing for seniors, and we're going to continue to tell you stories that you're not going to hear elsewhere. Uh, if you can, and actually, no, no, not if you can, support this effort. Uh, Membership to Channel 253 is $4 a month or $40 a year, and your support allows us to keep telling stories and to keep offering up points of view you're not going to hear elsewhere. There's nowhere else uh, in Washington State Media that's going to offer up a 45- to 50-minute podcast about the importance of the census that ends with the laughs and yucks this one's going to end up with. And so if you believe in this work that we do, please support it. And if money is short for you right now, another way you can support the show is uh, go on Apple Podcasts and write a review. Your reviews help other people find the show. And so I ask you to do one of those two things, support the show. All right, Kamal, let's get back to it. So, All right. And at the end of the last segment, you were talking about undocumented families and, and people who, have, who, who are trans and have concerns about gender expression. It's important for them to out the census. Mm-hmm. I, I nod and agree. Uh, At the same time, I feel pricked about a moment of conviction that I had as an educator at Lincoln High School uh, in like 2016, 2017, where there were students who I encouraged to apply for DACA. And for the uninitiated DACA is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, the DREAMers, basically legislation by Barack Obama that allowed undocumented students to get uh, temporary protection from deportation. Uh, to do DACA, students had to uh, basically submit their information to the U.S. government. And then the U.S. government at that point then, when immigration enforcement started stepping up, had a list of uh, undocumented people in the community, and some of them were targeted for enforcement action. Why should somebody who knows that history not be afraid of providing responses to the census? Um.
1: This is a really good question. This, like, validates uh, my the entire premise of me leaving my old job to uh, take this job at the Washington Census Alliance. Because, um, you know, at the time that uh, I decided to do that, uh, the citizenship question was looming, uh, a lot of questions around, can you trust this administration? uh, we're going around. Uh, that's very true. Um, and so I thought, you know, as someone who is undocumented, I have DACA. Um, I should, you know, it's important that, uh, this community led effort, especially from communities of color, uh, have someone who's talking about the census who can speak from a personal, uh, perspective about, you know, having, uh, skin in the game. So I almost want to pull back a little bit, um, from just uh, the current fear and concern, which is very valid um, that a lot of immigrants uh, and undocumented immigrants in particular uh, have around the census. And, you know, what I see is um, a struggle with, uh, at the crux of like, this is just a struggle with this country becoming a real multiracial democracy Um, and the ways that our institutions are completely, um, unable to navigate that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, part of it, you know, so I see a president that was elected with a minority of the popular vote. Um, the American people did not want, uh, Donald Trump, uh, administering the census. Um, I see, you know, uh, a census bureau that's, Uh, Incapable of answering uh, really valid questions around data security um, in the context of uh, America's relationship to communities in Washington State. So, you know, I'm on panels a lot with Census Bureau agents and they don't have great answers about um, the fact that the only time in our Constitution that slavery is acknowledged is the census clause. Um, and it's in the three-fifths clause that also uh talks about uh you know uh counting quote indians not taxed uh that's what's in the constitution and um the census bureau also can't you know secure people's, you know uh give great answers because people will especially here in the pacific northwest um, you know, you'll tell people, hey, your data's secure. Uh, the census doesn't share this data with agencies. Somebody will raise up their hand and say, uh, didn't they do that with Japanese internment? And that's, of course, an analogy that's really uh, a historical um, event that's really at the forefront of people's minds because of who's at the top of the government. And for people like me, I'm able to let people—I know the history, because, you know, as a person of color in the United States, working on the census, these are the things that you pay attention to. I know for a fact um, that after the census information was misused for Japanese internment, for example, rounding people up, um, that is what uh, led to the institution of uh, Title Thirteen. Um, people don't need to know the law, but the, the law number, but what they need to know is that is the law that uh, actually gives consequences to census agents uh, for sharing any information. That's uh, a felony, five years in jail, quarter million dollars in uh, a fine. And then I know that, of course, because uh, America's America, um, in Two thousand one, George W. Bush uh, tried to get around Title Thirteen in uh, the aftermath of nine eleven to get uh, individual responses to the census, and the Census Bureau did not allow him. um, And Title Thirteen was enforced. Do we have the same?
2: Do we have the same Census Bureau that we had in two thousand and one that we have in twenty twenty? Like, yeah. Like I, I think so. Everything you're saying, like I, I want people to fill the census out, right? Mm-hmm. And the history you're laying out is really clear, right? That like there's protections in place, but I, I also know that like I have a listener who's listening right now who's like full, like not full on conspiracy, but it's just concerned. Like I don't yeah. want to give them my data, and I just want to be able to say to them it's going to be okay.
1: Yeah. Uh. So it's it's two parts. One, I would say it's not even about the bureau. It's just about like the enforcement of the data privacy, uh, laws. And the great, the example that I give is there was another, um, you know, uh, very authoritarian leaving, leaning somewhat, uh, president who tried to violate title 13 and failed. And that, you know, the height of, um, uh, of, you know, the ability to kind of go around, uh, laws, this was kind of Patriot Act. Um, season, and he still can do it. The other thing is the thing that people should really understand is your individual responses to the census are immediately, like as soon as the census bureau gets your individual response, it anonymizes them and turns them into a statistic. So, uh, you know, at that point, it's very, very difficult for. Anyone to then get access to your individual response, and by law, um, because of Title Thirteen, that individual response is uh, like locked down um, for uh, seventy-two years, and then after that, is kind of people are able to like do Ancestry.com stuff and start figuring out who they were. The other thing that's important, and people should really understand this, and, and let others that they're concerned about know, is a census doesn't take down like a lot of critical information um you know it's your name uh sex uh race uh address um and uh on top of that and i know right now we're talking about just undocumented immigrants and mainly like ice dhs border patrol the census uh information doesn't get shared with any law enforcement agency either So if you're someone who has like a worn out um, because of like something (laughs) you did a few years ago, um, like we all got that cousin, uh, you're good. (laughs) Like uh, Tacoma PD isn't getting their hands on uh, your census information. Um, FBI isn't getting their hands on that. Um, And and so it's really important to respond. And so a, a little bit to tie back to what I was saying about the struggle of our country to try and become a multiracial democracy and we see these different eruptions where um it's like the, the government is like incapable of doing some of those most basic tasks because uh there are now um people who aren't white are uh, a growing um portion of the country and to actually get you know uh stuff that you probably talked about in your class you know the consent of the public to govern that sort of thing um, you really have to answer things. And right now, the census is great if you are uh, white, upper middle class, um, professional living in your suburbs. You got nice four bedroom house. The address is very clear. Uh, the mail that you check is, uh, you know, all sorts of just great stuff bills you're ready to pay, and pre approved credit cards, and, uh, you know, note <laughs> and little notes uh, getting sent from your kids in Vanderbilt or studying abroad. <laughs> um, that's a very, and, very
2: narrow type of listener right there.
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, maybe not so narrow for, <laughs> for this podcast, but, uh, and then if you're, you know, someone who's, you're an immigrant, um, you, maybe you're living, uh, in, a uh, trailer park, um, the address isn't very clear. Uh, you know, you're living there with, uh, other, uh, family members that are maybe part of your nuclear family and uncle that's like crashing on the couch. Um, what have you, and you got a warrant out, um, you know, like your brother got a warrant out and the mail that comes to your door are bills that you can't pay. Um, and that sort of thing, you know, it's really hard for the government to count you. Um, and you get, you know, in what, uh, they call, uh, hard to count communities, uh, the mm-hmm. Washington census lines, we say historically undercounted, um, but that's the difference. And it's, you know, something that uh, that's part of why we're so motivated to make sure that there's a complete count, but also um, to make the point that uh, the things that make it hard to count people uh, in uh, those places to count people who don't have stable housing, to count people in Indian country, um, there are structural reasons for that. And um, if uh, them being counted is going to lead to funding actually reaching their communities and making a difference and them getting uh, political power and political representation, we're going to have to uh, also make uh, structural changes in our infrastructure, our political system, our economic system.
2: So what I'm hearing you really say is that marginalized populations not being counted the census Actually, is going to have repercussions that further their marginalization. There'll be less That's money for infrastructure, less money for roads, less money for their schools. Uh, right. The government will have less awareness and drive less funds via formula grants. Okay, exactly. Uh, I want to pivot the conversation a little bit to like why some of the wonks are tuning in because one of the things that happens along with the census is reapportionment and redistricting, and so uh, this is where. Like, the sausage meets the road. That's that's not the right metaphor. This is where the sausage is made politically. There it is. Uh, One of my favorite takes of yours that I've seen you talk about online is uh, the detestable hardening of American immigration policy under President Trump and how uh, the racist policy of Stephen Miller, like, some of the worst policies have become normalized and won't necessarily go away with a new election. That, like... The Miller Trump immigration platform is largely, like, in many many ways, here to stay. I, I I'm struck by that take when I read it the first time, and I'm struck as I say it again. As I say it again, one of the avenues that we have in which to combat that uh, that immigration policy is through Congress. And so, can you talk about the process of redistricting and how redistricting is connected to the census and like why that's essential uh, for 2020 and onward?
1: Yeah, I could talk about uh, I could talk about that, and then um, I think it'll also be important to do a, a deep dive on kind of worst case scenario uh, with this administration. Um, but after there's a complete count, um, the Census Bureau puts that into a data set that goes out to the states, and um, each state gets assigned based on their count uh, how many congressional seats they're going to have and uh, you're exactly right the whole motivation for um, this administration and uh, particularly like the republican party that has come to understand uh, themselves and their role in this growing multiracial democracy that america is coming their um, role is one in which they keep uh, power um, and hold on to power and grow their political power uh, even as their base uh, shrinks. And so part of that is uh, you know, making sure that there was no immigration reform uh, in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that is uh, increasing immigration enforcement uh, to not only effectively remove people who otherwise would be uh, U.S. citizens because they've uh, been living in the country for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, Um, but it's also, you know, that enforcement is to scare people from doing things like filling out the census or voting, um, you know, ICE and its raids and, uh, the effect that it has on the surrounding communities is a form of voter suppression, um, um, you know, because somebody might be a citizen who's eligible to vote and they're in a mixed status family with someone who is undocumented. And um, if they're not always, uh, you know, following the news or feel like they can't even trust um, uh, the news or what uh, government says, they say the best way I can protect my undocumented cousin staying in my house is, you know, not to interact with the government. So to back to redistricting. This has been extremely contentious because, um, you know, how many representatives a state gets, you know, is how much political power they get for the next decade. And, uh, the, because we have the same 435 members, uh, of the house, um, when one state gains a seat as Washington state did in 2010, another state loses a seat and, um, now, as sort of the country gets more and more polarized, what you're seeing is uh, states that, um, in particular, polarized on racial lines, which are, end up, you know, correlating somewhat with population gains. States like Alabama, states like Ohio, um, that are kind of projected to lose seats, are uh, really don't want to lose that political power to states that are gaining um, because of uh, the population gains both internal migration and people migrating to the U.S. And uh, that's state sort of like uh, Washington, although we're not projected to gain a seat um, this cycle. Uh, but states like, uh, you know, Texas uh, that continues to grow, New York, Florida, you can kind of uh, see where, where that goes. And so that's the way the, the process works itself out. Each state run then runs its own redistricting process and we have a particular one uh in washington state here where um the legislature um the two parties in the legislature uh appoint uh commissioners so the republicans get two um positions to appoint to the washington state redistricting commission the democrats get two people to appoint um to that commission and then they vote on a neutral chair. And a lot of people think that means it's a nice uh, bipartisan um, effort that ends up in a sort of fair drawing of districts. But it's, um, it's not so much uh, bipartisan as it is hyper-partisan, um, um, where it's just uh, trench warfare between the two parties, census tract by census tract, where they almost always default to protecting their current members. And communities of color usually end up on um, the bad end of that deal.
2: So what are we looking at happening in Washington state? When I think about the geography of Washington state, uh, you mentioned that we're on pace to not gain uh, a seat this time around, but I know that the population gains in Washington state are largely on the West side of the mountains, which tends to vote mm-hmm. blue. And mm-hmm. that population growth on the East side of the mountains, particularly Washington five, which has uh Kathy McMorris Rogers is pretty, uh, pretty stagnant. And in mm-hmm. fact, it's funny to think about, like, Jay Ainsley's political political career. Like, Ainsley started off as a House member in central Washington before moving to the west side of the mountains. And so, like, what is on tap for Washington State under redistricting, assuming that we're going to maintain the number of seats and that population gains are strongest on the west side?
1: Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, hopefully we have, uh, you know, a complete count. And that means we were, we're operating with, um, you know, the most informed data, but you're exactly, I think you're, you're in the right direction. So Washington state is not projected to uh, gain a congressional seat. Um, And so you'll see that um, when it comes to the congressional districts, they're not going to move around uh, too much. There's not going to be any drastic changes. And again, you know, that's because part of that is also our redistricting commission, um, is going to try to just protect their their current members. Um, pulling back a bit for people who are maybe tuning in um, into sort of redistricting politics more recently in the last few years, it's important exactly what you said about uh, how these districts are drawn and the repercussions they have. So in 2010, when Washington State did gain a congressional seat, it also meant that that's the first time we got a majority-minority district. Um, and that's the ninth congressional district district. Um, that uh, you know, uh, Representative Smith now um, represents, but it also meant that we got four uh, majority minority legislative districts, um, and that one of the people that was able to win in that, that was the thirty seventh district, and uh, one of the first representatives was um, uh, then state senator uh, Pramod Jappal got elected to. Mm-hmm that seat became state senator and, um, very shortly afterwards, uh, was vaulted into, uh, Congress and, um, you know, has, you know, made huge changes there. So, uh, the kind of leadership that's able to, uh, come up based on these districts are really important. And so that's where you're really going to see, um, the, the, uh, fights happening is around what the legislative districts look like. Um, and then, uh, for people that are really wonky and really local, a lot of cities and a lot of uh, uh, counties, at least those that have districts, uh, they're also going to be redistricting. So you're going mm-hmm. to see um, city council districts shift around uh, county uh, districts shift around. And that's part of why that uh, self-response to the census and make sure you have accurate demographic data makes it real. Because at the local level in Washington state, uh, it's terrible for political representation. Um, we have less, uh, if I'm Correct about this. Um, we have, le- I think, we have less than five uh, county commissioners or county uh, council members in the entire state of Washington that are people of color. I only know of two, and in you know, kind of the big counties on Puget Sound, there's only one uh, Gramai in King County who just replaced the the, the other only person of color <laughs> um, on on a county uh, council seat or uh, commission. So. That's kind of where the state of play will be uh, for Washington State.
2: Uh, I'm in particular curious about the 10th congressional district. Uh, The 10th basically touches East Tacoma, but has the majority of its district and population kind of heading towards uh, Lacey and into Olympia. Uh, It's currently occupied by Denny Heck, but he's retiring and about 47 people are in line trying to take that seat right now. Uh, how might that district look different in under-redistricting? Uh, or actually, let me ask this differently. What would you, as a progressive activist, want that district to look like under redistricting?
1: Um, you know, I don't think it'll look that different. Uh, okay. And there's very little reason to think that, that it'll look different um, just based off the, the commission. So even if there are population changes, you know, maybe you'll see it um, – move uh and scratch more around uh some urban cores to try and um you know mitigate the population gains in, uh, in other parts of uh puget sound essentially you know for people who are painted what's going to happen is the, you're just going to see the map kind of just generally move uh closer to puget sound so like the fifth congressional district in spokane it'll start to eat up more of uh Eastern Washington, but um, again, I would say the real uh, big differences that um, people should be paying attention to are going to be in particularly Central Washington and on the legislative uh, districts. So. There's good reason to believe you know we fought really hard for this redistricting bill that would make things more transparent um but when i was talking about those four majority minority legislative districts uh one of them was uh the 15th um which represents yakima and uh you know to tie it to sort of the uh 10th congressional district there's a lot of rumors that when that 15th district was drawn it ended up one splitting the yakima nation in half mm-hmm and kind of cracking the uh, native vote. Um, and it also uh, was a majority minority district by uh, population, but uh, because, uh, you know, in voting, but it was not majority minority by voting uh, population, people who, who vote. And that's because people who regularly vote are old white and tend to be retired. And um, the people who are, Uh, people of color in that district are like very young Latinos. They're like, you know, look more like your classroom. Um, And so they're obviously not eligible to vote. And part of that trade, you know, rumors are, was to make sure that uh, Representative Heck didn't lose uh, his district. So you can go back and see what his election margins were in uh, 08 and and 10, and then start to see what his margins were uh, after that. Um, But, you know, because uh, the way redistricting is going to work in that area, particularly like around Yakima, Tri-Cities, uh, Central Washington, I think uh, I'll make a prediction. Um, you're going to see a majority-minority uh, district uh, drawn, legislative district uh, drawn there that uh, is actually capable of electing a person of color. And I think that because either you know the commission will do it or because of the uh, Voting Rights Act, um, you know, uh, I think there's a lot of groups that are interested in making a challenge there. And then I'd say for listeners here, try to pay attention to what your localities are going to do next year um, in redistricting um, because that's where you can have the the most impact. I mean, there are people on the show who can probably uh, get on a charter um, commission for uh, their county or city and then uh, see what you can do because that's where... Um, communities of color are really lacking political representation and um, where we have an ability to change. Because even when we're talking about, you know, I I spoke earlier that the census redistributes political power. um, It also reifies political institutions that I don't think um, are actually that great. So the fact that we even have um, districts and first past the post, winner takes all voting. So this is kind of what allows for there to be a, like a two-party um, monopoly. The fact that you only need 51 or uh, 50% plus one to uh, win a 100% of power, um, you know, I don't think that's great for communities of color. And if we took a step back and say, okay, you know, Washington State is becoming more diverse. We have an obligation to... Um, you know, honor sovereign boundaries and uh, first people. We have an obligation to make sure that uh, there's equitable representation of, in, of people of color in our political uh, institutions and in government. Um, maybe this system isn't working great. And uh, right now it's illegal for um, counties and cities to move to things like rank choice voting, proportional representation, um, where if you have you know, twenty-five, a little over twenty-five percent of a population, you have a good shot at um, still getting political representation. But there are three counties that are have nonpartisan seats and charters that allowed them to experiment. And so, I think something else you're going to see. Um, those three counties are San Juan, I believe, Watcom, and King County. And I think you're going to see that as a country, you know, we get a complete count. We have this discussion again about the Browning of America, and really. What that means is, you know, having a real multiracial democracy. I think you're going to see counties start to uh, rethink whether the um, the districts and, um, you know, really work, or if there needs to be a proportional representative uh, system and ranked choice voting at the local level, and then try to use that to push for um, better representation in higher levels of government.
2: It's And then I think that- we should
1: talk about, uh, we should... We would, we should really talk about uh worst case scenario for apportionment and redistricting.
2: Yeah, I, I want to. It's, it's interesting you talked about Representative Jayapal's district in Seattle, because one of the things I think about is, is that like in Pierce County, uh, Eric Hanberg's talked about a lot on the network. Uh, Tacoma votes Democratic pretty strongly and it's inside of a red, it's inside of a red county. Uh, if a district like the twenty-sixth, which used used to extend into Tacoma and no longer does, extended back into Tacoma under redistricting, uh, that could be a seat and that could be a district that would that could flip in the legislative session, uh or in elections. Or like you mentioned uh minority majority minority districts, uh funny thing, uh our dearly departed uh Problematic friend David Sawyer uh, once laid out to me that uh, the 29th actually has uh, more black voters than any district in uh, the state of Washington and the 29th got Melanie Morgan. And I'm really glad that Melanie Morgan's there uh, because Melanie Morgan shepherded through uh, the bill that protected black folks from discrimination based on their hair. And it's like, these are the kind of things that can happen, right? Like when you redistrict and create districts that are more reflective of the population in a given community, then you can change who gets elected. Steve Kirby has been represented the 29th since I was negative 17 years old. Uh, <laughs> S- Steve Kirby would not win a race for an open seat in the 29th. He's there because he's, he's incumbent. Whoever right. replaces Kirby is going to be, uh, well, younger, uh, more progressive, and likely have a lot more melon in their skin. And so that's why like reapportionment and stuff match, uh, really matters. All right. Doug is going to murder me over time. So I want to go worst case scenarios really quickly. Worst case scenarios, Go.
1: Uh, so the worst case scenario is, um, what happened has to do with what happened after the, uh, citizenship question, uh, ruling at the Supreme court. So like I said, um, you know, the Supreme court made this, uh, Ruling and uh, Chief uh, Roberts did this like ninth grade essay um, <laughs> trick, where it's just wait. Really... Don't
2: say ninth grade essays. By the way, I read some great <laughs> ninth grade essays.
1: I remember my ninth grade essays; uh, they were not great. Um, so what they ruled was that the was that implementing a citizenship question was unco- was uh, a violation of the Administrative Procedures Act. You know, nothing about the Constitution. And then the day afterwards, um, the president. And uh, Attorney General Bill Barr went to the Rose Garden, and they said something that uh, really caught uh, my ear in particular, is they said they were gathering the citizenship data through uh, federal agencies. And then on top of that, they um, Attorney General Bill Barr said that that data may be relevant for the purposes of apportionment. So my ears immediately perked up. And people can look this up on, on YouTube. And so when he was doing that, he referenced a dispute. The dispute that he's referencing is a kind of lawsuit, but it kind of points to um, the power that the White House is going to have um, and possibly exercise over apportionment. There's a lawsuit between Representative Mo Brooks of Alabama, which is set to lose a congressional seat, claiming harm. Um, because they're going to lose a congressional seat to places like, uh, Texas, um, which is going, which is projected to gain about three congressional seats because, um, undocumented people are going to be counted. And so Representative Mo Brooks is trying to get the Census Bureau not to count undocumented people. But it's not going to go anywhere. But in there, it's also a wild lawsuit, by the way, where, um, the Justice Department, uh, it gets reprimanded in the footnotes by the judge for not putting forward the best arguments and for, um, <laughs> and for, uh, you know, just failing to offer the court the, the best information, which is wild. But in that, well, though,
2: lawsuit, I read the initial filing, he's not wrong, like the filing is trash, like for real. But sorry, continue.
1: <laughs> it is, it is, it's, it's genuinely wild. Um, and you can't tell if that's just like incompetence or directives from, from the administration, but. Anyways, so there's this lawsuit where, you know, Mo Brooks is saying we're losing a congressional seat and the reason is because of immigrants and undocumented immigrants in particular. And there's an intervention by King County to, you know, make sure that um, this doesn't go anywhere and uh, that uh, undocumented people are counted. Okay, fine. In that, it also references the current court precedent, which says that the role of the president in the apportionment process is uh, not symbolic or ceremonial. And that's really key because of the timeline. So December 31st is the deadline for the Census Bureau to give the White House uh, the complete count this year. After that, uh, and this is in the Constitution, um, you know, reapportionment begins when the next Congress uh, convenes. That's January 3rd. And then they have uh, up to 15 days um, to send uh, apportionment guidelines and uh, the count to the states to redistrict. And importantly, it's the congressional clerk. Um, So the Census Bureau gives the count a report to uh, the White House. The White House... Uh, passes on that report to the congressional clerk, and it's very clear in, in the uh, federal statute that um, you know the legislators have no role because even if the congressional clerk isn't available, um, maybe they're like quarantined um, with coronavirus. Goes to the sergeant, the sergeant at arms to do Too it. Too soon, by the way. Too soon. Too soon. We might be living with it for a long time, um, and <laughs> and then uh, that goes back to the states. So let's. Kind of, you know, connecting all the dots, you could see a scenario where uh, the Census Bureau says, "Here is the complete count. Here is everybody living in the United States." Then the White House turns around and says, you know, thanks for that complete count. I think it's good that we use this for building roads because, you know, um, even undocumented immigrants are, are walking on the roads. It's okay if we use it for funding formulas for the schools. But then in the, what they shared, the guidelines that they shared to the congressional clerk to share with the states, they said, we also have this really accurate information we've been gathering from the agencies about mm. who is a citizen in the United States. And you know what? For the purposes of apportioning congressional seats, Um, take the complete count minus all these people who are immigrants or undocumented. And that's how you're going to, uh, that's the data set that you should be using to redraw the lines. Now, probably like the listeners um, who've uh, been in the resistance uh, (laughs) since 2017, um, I can already hear them saying, uh, Oh, but the courts, uh, you know, we should sue the courts. And this is where that remedy is, uh, not going to be so great, um, or the prospects of it are not, um, so great because what we would have to, one is, once at least one state would have to refuse, uh, the apportionment because like we talked about, it's the same 435, uh, seats shifting around. And so something that we've been working on is to make sure that Washington state, um, if this worst case scenario takes place and it's not completely, um, you know, uncertain that it'll, it'll, uh, happen like there's a good chance that washington state just refuses um to accept the guidelines that sets up a lawsuit but then we're in really tough um uh uh fighting grounds on because we would have to prove um the the bar would be constitutional so we would Mm -hmm. have to prove it is unconstitutional to not include undocumented immigrants for the purposes of apportioning uh, congressional seats, and if you think that goes up all the way to the Supreme Court, um, you know, embedded in uh, that, uh, there's a four justices that are completely okay with it, right? Like, it's very easy um, for this administration to at least count to four, and in John Roberts' ruling, because he was, you know, the only ruled against the citizenship question because it violated the Administrative Procedures Act, not that it, you know, would undercount. Um, immigrants and have this terrible effect, it's hard for uh, me to see uh, Chief uh, Roberts saying that it is unconstitutional to not include undocumented immigrants uh, for the purposes of apportioning congressional seats. And so um, you can also imagine that this might take place uh, with everything going on uh, with the virus, with the uh, president at... Um, you know, rock bottom approval rates, a 30%, perhaps the president loses the election. And again, because the timeline here is Congress in convenes the lame on duck January period. 3rd. Yeah, it's exactly, in the lame the duck period. And the deadline for the, for the uh, Congress, for the congressional clerk to pass this on is uh, at the latest January 18th. It's still going to be uh, the Trump administration writing those guidelines and sharing those guidelines with the states and it would be a big fu to everybody on his way out um, to set into place um, the uh distribution of political power in the u.s uh towards a minority um uh revanchist uh political movement for the next decade um and so Again, this is kind of goes back to part of why I think the census is so important, redistricting is so important, particularly at this time, is this, we're at a, a turning point about how the country is going to um, change and how our, how our institutions are going to need to change to become a true multiracial democracy. I mean, you know, you can basically... Count the start of multiracial democracy in the U.S. with 1965. Sure. Um, before that, you really can't call it uh, a multiracial democracy. And um, whether we go the way of uh, California, um, where it's you know it's a more welcoming environment, even if it's like not great, and uh, there at least isn't the level of voter suppression that you've in other places. Or whether we go the way of texas uh where you know marginalized people especially um minorities uh, are kept marginalized where there's voter suppression where there's a huge effort to uh make sure that communities of color don't get the representation uh they deserve uh based on um population is a real question um and then of course you know with this worst case scenario It's not um, impossible to imagine that the president gets reelected, at which point, um, you know, it's all gone. But uh, I think that's why, you know, people should be paying attention to the census, making sure everybody gets counted. Uh, People should be paying attention to redistricting, particularly at the local level. And if you're a person that listens to this podcast and you care about uh, equity and you care uh, about local issues, really thinking about uh, whether your city your county um, is uh, uh, an institution is uh, a government body that is capable of um, flourishing in a multiracial democracy um, or if it's not um, you know and here I'm thinking about Pierce County where if you look at that County Council <laughs>
2: Bro, I was like I was just like obligatory Pam Roach. Like Pam Roach is not the answer.
1: <laughs> not the answer. But, you know, also like the districts make it really hard for communities of color in Pierce County, uh, uh, particular, to uh, have political representation on that level. And what we need to do, like, do we need to change um, our county governments? Do we need to change the way our city governments and charters are? Um to reflect uh, our values and the shared project of multiracial democracy that I think we're going to be uh, in for um, the, the rest of our lives, uh, probably. Like that's going to be the, the fight of um, this generation is uh, trying to make that real um, and fighting against the forces that are preventing it from becoming real.
2: I think you should join Doug and Mai's Apocalypse Doom book club because uh, you just laid out a very worst case electoral scenario. All right, Kamal, I loved having you on the show. Very quickly, uh, we end the show with a thing called The Wind Down. Hey. Who's one person that folks out there should be listening to? It could be, uh, it could be a speaker, a professor, a podcast, a singer, a rapper, anybody. Like, who should they be listening to?
1: Okay. Uh, I'm going to go with a speaker who's top of mind for me. Um, a week ago, we had a big, uh, convening of, um, our members for the Washington Census Alliance. And I got to, uh, speak with, um, council member Barisha Khan, um, of Redmond. Uh, you should have her on this show. Everybody should be figuring out a way to, uh, Hear what she's saying. Uh, she was also on another uh, local political podcast called Activist Class. Um, that's uh, people can find uh, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. But she got elected uh, last year to the Redmond City Council. Uh, I believe she beat a 12-year Republican. Uh, you know, it's a nonpartisan position, but you can tell by who's donating the candidates. Uh, Republican sure. incumbent. She won in a recount, but I think six. 66 votes, 24, uh, years old, um, you know, comes out of, uh, similar places, uh, as a lot of, uh, great leaders in Washington state, uh, one America, um, she helped run the pack there and, uh, she was, uh, one she's now one of three muslim women to ever hold uh, elected office in washington state history she's one of the first to ever win an election um the first two muslim women got elected um in 2019 one uh her uh brisha kantu redmond uh another uh, muslim woman was elected at pasco and uh she's just absolutely uh brilliant i think she's like a person to watch in Washington state politics, um, in the coming years, total powerhouse. And I think the work that you're going to be seeing her pushing, uh, in Redmond, which is most people don't know is now a majority minority, uh, city, um, is something to really pay attention to.
2: Awesome. Uh, if people
1: want to follow you on the socials, where should they look? Um, let's see. Uh, <laughs> You can request me on Facebook, uh, for some of the, uh, more muted stuff, uh, for the spicy tweets, uh, you can at me at Kamau, Mau, Mau, K-A-M-A-U-M-A-U-M-A-U. Um, thanks for having me on, Nate. This was fun. It was my
2: pleasure. Thank you for coming on. What kind of favor, y'all? Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. When I bought my house in East Tacoma, my house was in the 10th. I bought in 2011, and when the new maps took over, it moved into the 6th. No, I'm lying. Actually, I'm lying. My house is in the 10th, but it's in the... Okay, let's back up. My house is in the 27th legislative district. Ah, I don't know. Hey, Doug, I'm going to reset this really fast. (laughs) Is it that Um, Nate only gets to do this or
1: like, can I also read that? No,
2: only I, only I. (laughs) Doug's cracking up. The Nerd Farmer podcast is part of the Channel 253 network. Check
1: out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Citizen Tacoma, Crossing Division, Flounders B Team, We Art, Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.